0: Welcome to another episode of Unleashing the Future of Work, a guide live podcast, B2B jam session. Man, today I'm super, super excited about who I have on as our first guest on today's episode. Before I dive deep and actually bring him on the show, I want to show love to Oakland. Good morning, Oakland. If you are just waking up right now in Oakland, I hope you're having a wonderful morning and you enjoyed your weekend. If you are tuning in from somewhere that is not Oakland, Hey, show us some love. Let us know where you're tuning in. I know it's morning somewhere over there in the, in the international waters. But if you're tuning in right here from our backyard in California, specifically Oakland, whether you're in the Bay Area, you're in L.A., how are you holding up? We currently continue to quarantine our best. So I hope you're hanging in there, staying safe mentally, emotionally, and physically Healthy. And today, I want to say I have a NASA astronaut on the show with me, but I have someone even better, (laughs) even better than a NASA astronaut. Today, we're actually going to be talking with Steve Rader, who currently serves as the deputy manager for NASA's Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation which is COSI. I love that name, COSI. And is one of 20 challenge mentors for U.S. Government Services Administration prizes and challenges government-wide community of practice. Steve has worked with various, various projects and organizations to develop and or execute over 60 different challenges, 60, y'all, for NASA organizations and other federal agencies. He speaks regularly about NASA's work and crowd-based challenges both publicly and internally to the NASA workforce to promote the use of open innovation tools. And he's truly an open innovation evangelist. If there's an expert in this space, Steve Rader is the man, and also a super passionate future of work, passionate economy advocate. And more recently, Mr. Rader has supported the Mars, Mars, this is Mars. I'm not talking, this is is someone that talks to people that goes to Mars every other day. And I'm actually really excited about that. More recently, he supported the Mars design reference mission definition and a number of analog mission, studying space mission operations and design. Mr. Raider began studying cross-sourcing communities since 2011, we're gonna dive deep a little bit on his background and how he got started in doing that and joined the center of excellence for collaborative innovation as the deputy manager in 2013. So he's been at this for quite some time, really seeing the future of work and crowdsourced open innovation models unfold. And really in this episode, we are really truly gonna dive deep on a lot of the things that he's been recently talking about in a few of his recent speaking gigs around the acceleration of the future of work, the equity opportunities that are currently happening around the future of work and how that's been accelerated, as well as his thoughts on the lifelong learning model that that is currently being formed, as well as his thoughts on the passion economy, which we know a lot about on um, being that we're guy. So with that said, I'm super excited to have Steve on. Please show him some love. Wish him, wish him, hey, happy Monday. Let us know what you're thinking. Join us in this conversation and ask as many questions as possible. Steve, it's truly an honor to have you on the show, man. Oh, pleasure's pleasure is all mine. I mean, I'm getting to talk to Mr. Future
1: of Work, man. <laughs> I mean, I've watched your podcast for a
0: while. That's great, great stuff. So I, I'm it's a thrill for me to be on. Thanks. Oh, Steve, it's truly an honor, Steve. You know, Steve, we'd love for you to share a little bit because you have such an illustrious background and you've been, you know, in this field for so long. You know, how did you get passionate about this work and what does it really stem from?
1: Oh, well, you know, I've actually worked at NASA for like 30 years now. So um, I, I would say I'm passionate about space exploration and what NASA is doing uh, from the get-go. Uh, but in 2009, I read Jeff Howe's book on crowdsourcing, and it just blew my hair back. I was just, there is something new going on in the world, and I could really see the opportunities for NASA. Uh, but you you saw that the kind of the rules had changed, like the way we could tap into this new, you know cognitive surplus, as Clay Shirky puts it, right? This sure. tapping into everyone's brain and it, it that it was just so much more effective. And so I became passionate. i I went out and joined Quirky and joined Amazon Mechanical Turk and all these different crowds and started trying to understand why are why are people doing this? What can hmm. you get out of it? How does it work? you know and i quickly found just this amazing world of crowdsourcing uh that at the time was relatively new but already disrupting industry uh and so about that same time nasa started kind of dipping their toe in and you know dr jeff davis and jason cruzan started some pilot programs and within a very short amount of time, they were proving that this stuff really worked and worked well for the kind of stuff NASA was doing. And so they eventually stood up the center of excellence. I saw the job opening. I went for it. And uh, it's been really a dream job ever since because, you know, when your passion intersects with what you do every day, as you know, it yeah. uh, it changes things. And. That's kind of what I see. This this is the opportunity for almost everyone to have that
0: kind of uh, an experience. So, yeah, that's no, kind of is, you've truly been living the passion economy for. I mean, I would say over thirty years. Now. <laughs> <laughs> with, with, you know, we'd love to you know uh, you know talk with you because you've seen a lot of changes unfold in the world of work for these last thirty years, um, and right now we're currently experiencing change unlike we've ever seen before right. in the world of work. You know. Uh, being that you have such a very varied and layered career within NASA, you know, how would you say that the world of work has changed, you know, within within where we was 30 years ago, 40 yeah. years ago, and where we are now?
1: Yeah, so I'm an engineer, right? I'm a mechanical engineer, and I started my job in technical world doing flight control and software and all these things. And one of the things that, that I used to be able to do is if I had a project, I could go out. I could find the latest and greatest tech. I could recruit folks that knew about that tech. We could put a team together. We could work for three years kind of putting that together, getting it flight certified. We could fly it. And by the time I launched that up to space station or space shuttle or wherever it was flying, the technology would not have changed enough for anyone to notice. Like if I found the latest and greatest, and to find that tech, I just had to talk to some experienced folks to go to a couple of tech uh, summits, you know, conferences, maybe read a couple of tech journals, talk to some vendors. It wasn't hard to find the latest and greatest tech. And mm. we had all the skills. NASA recruited well. Everyone kind of understood how programming went. You had to take a couple of classes to keep up, you know, here and there. But generally, you could keep up. And <laughs> what we're finding now is things have changed. Mm. And... If you start a project now, one, you're probably not going to be able to find all the technologies that apply to your project and are the best starting point. We are in the midst of an explosion in technology. A lot of people don't realize how big it is. You know, we hear about it every day. Text text changing. 90% of all the scientists that have ever lived on planet Earth are alive today. Like, think about that for a second. Think of all the discovery... That's been made over you know a thousand years, and all of those people that made that happen, that's a tenth of what we have today. Mm. And if you look, what you see is you know, around the world, universities, technical schools have come online and are producing engineers and scientists mm. as the global population grows and becomes more connected, and they're hitting the technology world, and they're over the last 20 years, right? So India and China especially have put in place some education programs that now are producing engineers and scientists. And so you're getting this huge um, effort going in. If you look at the number of PhDs, it's literally the spike over the last like five years or so where they just start going through the roof. And the same with, um, if you look at patent applications, patent applications used to be like a couple hundred thousand a year. I think in 2017, it topped three and a half million a year, like the amount of tech going on. And so what's happening is there's just all of this uh, kind of mixing of what's going on. Like this technology will feed into this one. Hmm. And there's particularly a set of technologies I call building block technologies. These are like deep on that. What are building blocks? Technology. Oh, these are crazy. so these are the technologies that we're all building on, right yeah. So uh, open apis, right think about think about just Google Maps when they open that API, that software API up on the web, think about how many software programs started using online maps. Hmm. like it's staggering just the amount of, of software and, and systems that now have that integral to their system, right yeah. 3D printing. Machine learning, nanomaterials, a uh, CRISPR. People don't think about it, but CRISPR is this new gene editing that's affordable. It's super affordable. It's super easy to learn, and it's editing genes <laughs> like like the genome. Like it's super scary in some ways, but but you know, suddenly you've got the barriers to entry to doing research and doing some really special things. Uh, drones, right? You think drones are just toys. No, drones have transformed the real estate market. Uh, I saw a a new way to do bridge inspection. Like, Think about how many bridges there are out there and how that's done manually. It literally is a 100x improvement on the way they do that. And you're seeing that over and over in these different building block technologies. And the thing that makes them special is not only are they affordable, easy Mm -hmm. to learn, and and, uh, everyone's learning how to use them, but they apply to almost every industry machine learning. Every industry needs to learn how that works because it is now changing everything. You could say the same thing about additive manufacturing, about materials, about, uh, you know, cheap sensors, robotics, Hmm. all of these things are kind of creating the snowball. So now, you know, 30 years later, I want to start a project. Okay. I want to, I'm going to build the latest and greatest radio. well, I can't just go talk to some people to find what the greatest tech is out there for antennas and for power amps, for all the things. It, you can't Google that anymore because the amount of work going on out there is just amazing. And so you actually, it, it's its funny. The chances are that your solutions already been developed are higher than ever, right? Yeah. Because. True everyone's doing a little bit of, of vamping on these different things and they're creating new things. But so at no other time has there been this kind of latent solutions, just sitting out there waiting for you to pluck them off and apply them to your system and get these amazing gains on performance. The problem is they're hidden and it's like a needle in a haystack. You (laughs) can't find them. So, you know, and people think, oh, I'll just Google. Let me just Google the latest and greatest radio tech. No, it doesn't work that way at all, right? The people that have that stuff are holding it tight or they've got it behind IP firewalls, and it's it's just a mess. So this is where really I think crowdsourcing has become not just a novelty. Mm. It's become the thing, the secret sauce, mm. if you will, for finding those technologies, and for finding the expertise, because let's just say over here in agriculture, somebody's come up with this new machine learning technique that's maybe uh, goes along with some other stuff that they've put together. And you see a presentation on it. Like I'm mm-hmm. over here in aerospace and I see that presentation. I go, well, that's really cool for them. I don't, <laughs> I don't really understand what they're talking about well enough to know, but that doesn't apply to me. But somebody who understands a little bit of my work and a little bit of their work and understands the nomenclature and the words that are being used goes, no, no. If I just change these two little things, this moves over to aerospace and suddenly you have a thruster that can get three times the thrust. And you're like, wait, what just happened? Right. So we're seeing that over and over is that the crowd, when you put problems out to the crowd, Mm. the crowd has all the latest and greatest expertise. And it's weird. You you can't say that about a company. In fact, you can say the opposite about a company and an organization because they basically recruit and own, retain talent, right? You hear that? Mm. Our HR's job is to to retrain uh, talent. Mm. Well, as soon as they do that, those folks stop stop actually keeping up with the latest and greatest at the level that, that the crowd can. So the crowd almost always has the latest and greatest and it almost always can be found through contests, through various matching ways. Uh, And what we're finding is it is kind of this kind of dragnet that Mm. you can use with all of this tech work going on. And it makes such a huge difference to your outcomes. I can go on and on about this. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No,
0: Steve, I love that you dove deep on this because I think what, what you're highlighting is that, you know, over the last 30 years or so, we've seen this huge shift from in terms of the accessibility, a developer tools, developer infrastructure platforms where it's easy for anyone to get involved in a passion economy, to find their job, to create anything. I mean, even us creating this broadcast right now, we're using a tool for that that allows me to stream to multiple channels. That is never, I mean, 20 years ago, if someone said this exists, it would be crazy, right? But it makes, you, it, makes it easy for anyone to just put anything out there and learn. And I think what, what I love about what you're saying too is the fact that the barrier has been reduced for anyone to learn, create, and more importantly, apply those right. learnings, whether within an enterprise or through a, a cross-source model.
1: Absolutely, and and I think you hit on on a bunch of things right there, right? Which one is everyone now has access to global markets? Like you mm. talk about this being in Oakland. No, no, your podcast is everywhere. I know people yeah. all around the world that know about yeah. your podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And that's just it. That's the power is um, we're seeing that that the platforms, right? Platforms and tools on the internet are now basically connecting resources on one side of the network and consumers and people on the other. And that's where crowdsourcing has become really interesting because it kind of deals with um, how do you turn on all these folks in these different communities to go help solve problems and attack attack things you know if you just look at wikipedia and what was accomplished there uh through that community it's it's mind-boggling um but then it's also changing the way we work right these new uh freelance platforms are doing exactly that they're making global markets accessible they're making they're bringing down the friction required to be your own freelancer and to do your own passion if you think about um if i was passionate about something uh, 10 15 years ago mm-hmm. i could be a freelancer i could go out and try to market that but i would have to find all my own customers and they would most likely all be local and people i knew right i'd have to market to them i'd have to do all of the the money stuff i'd have to you know make sure that they paid the bills i'd have to talk to collectors when they didn't these new platforms are kind of abstracting all that away right and so i can I can live my passion. Let's just say I'm, I'm passionate about um, doing uh, computer-aided design, right? I can do that online now, and these platforms will feed me a steady stream of work from around the world in different industries. Hmm. So, you know, and and they'll they'll make sure I get paid no matter what the currency is. Yes, there's a fee for them to, to, to take that, but I'm not doing all of that. So there's a huge savings for me. And I get, I get agency, right? I get to make the decision whether I do that work or I don't do that work. And if I have more than one passion, guess what? There's more than one platform. And I can actually pursue a life that has multiple passions. The biggest thing I see is people don't believe they can make a living at it. Mm. The reality is there's this smorgasbord platforms out there and platforms that will help you to upskill and learn and kind of not just be this kind of singular skill set, but you can actually start in one skill set and then move up in that or or become diverse through other platforms. So you see platforms like TopCoder with like 100 or 1.5 million users. The reason people join there is because they're they're kind of software nerds, right? They want to connect with other people that are software nerds. They want to be able to learn and they have little courses there, but they want to try it out too, without any consequences. You can't do that on the job, right? You can't like, Hey, I'm just going to try it. Well, you get on a contest. Well, I'm just going to try this Yeah. and it works. Maybe you win a prize. If it doesn't, there's other community members say, Oh no, this is what you should do. And it's this community way of learning that's kind of built into the platform. Um, but then you're also seeing some really creative new stuff too, right? This upskilling is really the secret. Let me back up because this I'm really passionate about it.
0: And before you dive deep on it, okay. I want us to show love to our amazing, our amazing community. Shout out to Mohammed, shout out to Berku Kare, who's tuning in. Hello, you all. Hope you all are having a great day. Shout out to Raj who's tuning in from ATL. Steve, we got somebody from ATL uh-huh. in. The- AT- My about to move to Atlanta, man. I'm, <laughs>
1: Atlanta. I'm driving there in a week or two. All
0: right, dude. Enjoy yourself, Steve. We have Oriani who's tuning in from New York. Oriani, thank you. It's super. It's such a blessing to have you here, Ms. Jimenez. And shout out to Raj as well, tuning in from ATL as well. You know, I want you to kind of talk to a little bit of um, the questions that Megan's actually asking, who is one of our top members and viewers. Hello, Megan from Memphis, who works with FedEx Ground and Space Logistics. Her thoughts are, you know, do you think people PhDs um, don't you think don't you need to combine PhDs with highly adaptable generalists? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Dave? Oh, love that question. I just finished um, the book. Um, oh, now I'm gonna now I'm gonna space on it. Um, it's blue. It's it's all about generalists. Um, it'll come to me in a second. I but, think I know what
0: you are talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can't think of the title either.
0: I can't think of that either. <laughs> David
1: Epstein's uh range, uh, oh, really, range. Yes, it's and it's a great book and it talks exactly about this that that you know our education system's pumping out people that are
0: mm-hmm. are
1: very narrow but deep in their in their knowledge and that kind of phd mentality uh, and yet one of the things that's really important these days is to be able to connect the dots and to be able mm-hmm. to actually do that. I would say that 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 is one of the advantages of the crowd is that it has both of those folks. Um, And we see over and over the innovation. uh, Warren Berger has a great book called A More Beautiful Question. And in it, he kind of talks about some of the research that where you have expertise and and these folks that really are the head researchers, you, you lack innovation because they rely on on their knowledge uh, and they kind of remind the same space over and over. They have very tight constraints and they actually limit outside thinking. Uh, we actually just did a research project not too long ago um, with NIST where they were trying to work on differential privacy. And uh, one of the researchers that, that entered said, you know, um, this was really helpful because I got to try things that my... PhD supervisor never would have let me try, right? <laughs> and that's where innovation comes from. It's trying those things out and failing and kind of getting all that going. And so mm-hmm. I, I think the crowd does have that huge opportunity to bring both, both the mix of diversity and expertise at the same time, which a lot of times we're really good at getting that expertise problem, but not the diversity piece. But then when we throw it out to the diversity, sometimes we don't have the expertise needed. One of the more exciting things that's starting to happen is crowdsourcing platforms that are starting to put together high-performing teams, where they actually will bring people with expertise, seed that with the diversity piece that we know is really important to innovation, and kind of get those two pushing against each other. And I think that's going to be a
0: really exciting time in the innovation space. Love that. That's a powerful, powerful answer. And I think it's it's where the world is moving towards, too. So I, let me correct myself. Megan was saying that she meant that FedEx does ground shipping and NASA does space logistics. <laughs> <is pretty> awesome. <laughs> Shout out to Megan for putting those two worlds together. That's you know, awesome. I want to dive deep and I want to show love really quickly. I want to show love. Thank you so much, Orleni. Mrs. Jimenez, you are loving this episode. You're giving us a hand clap. We appreciate you. You know, Raj is saying, could you please share the name of the website that you were thinking of? Was it TopCoder? Okay. Coder.com. And I'll add a link to that in the comments. You know, I want to move on and actually dive deep on another really angle that another angle that you're really passionate about, Stephen. You've been talking a lot about due to the acceleration of the future of work due to COVID-19. You know, the passion economy, man, and really us having the um, opportunity to do things like this you know share what, and love and share and talk about what we love talking about you know wh- what companies do you think are unlocking that within their workforce in a sense and you know where do you see the passion economy going you know post covid-19 with all of these new ideas coming to the forefront yeah. everyone now realizing okay i don't have to live in a city to be happy I can go live in the suburbs. I can go live in in the island in Peru and still get work done and and feel fulfilled. Where do you see it going, man? Yeah. So
1: uh, interesting companies, adoption is slow on this. We're seeing lots of this stuff form and and the workers are moving faster than the companies are figuring out how to deal with this. And it was the same with remote work, right? People kind of moved out and said, hey, look, it really does work. Um, I would say companies that, that uh, I've intersected biology Bondilli at Deloitte is doing some amazing stuff at Deloitte where they're integrating this into their very fabric of what they're doing uh, and integrating in people. Cause they, they recognize the passion. Um, when Diane Finkhausen was at GE, she was doing that same thing through genius link, right? You know, all these people, right? Uh, Paul Estes, when he was at Microsoft, he was doing this stuff. The interesting thing I'm seeing is that, the, that as companies start to struggle, One of the first things they're doing is shutting down Mm. these initiatives because they're really struggling, right? Big companies are really struggling right now, especially under COVID. I think we're talking about the future of work really being about how companies are reinvented. Mm. I'm not sure how many big companies can actually pivot. Um, I'm actually working really hard to get NASA to pivot because I want us to get ahead of this. I want us to understand how do we get the latest and greatest skills and expertise? How do we get the best creativity as our starting point? We have amazing people at NASA. And so it's actually a hard sell, right? To say, hey, I know we have the great people, but how do we get that best starting point so that we leverage all of that amazing work that's going on out there? How do we bring that in uh, so that we, we keep up with the times? so i think it'll be interesting to see adoption because mm. where we see it we're seeing amazing stories uh you know 75 percent savings we're seeing new new jobs coming about um i i, I just read kareem lakani in uh marco city's book um called uh competing in the age of ai and it just it blew me away again because it really shows how all these piece parts are starting to move and it shows kind of what the next generation of firms going to look like, right? So and financial in China, uh, Amazon, uh, you know, where they've pivoted to this understanding, this stuff's moving fast. We need a scalable architecture that can bring in the skills we need when we need it. I know Microsoft's doing some of that. Now, Google's doing some of that now. Um, and there's a lot of smaller companies I'm finding. Uh, I talked to more. It's funny. It's either the really big guys or the really small guys. The really small guys are like, I-, I talked to one guy the other day who runs an event planning, and he said he-, he goes, I have a team of 15 people. That if I had to pay them, would I would have to pay them well over six figures yeah. for, for just the last six months of work. He says. But they're doing all this work. I'm getting to know them. I know who does good work. And I've spent a fraction of that mm. to get all that done. And it's actually efficient for everyone because here's the, here's the secret about uh, that, that people forget about traditional organizations, right? Traditional organizations are set up with an HR department and people offices and all that great stuff in management. It works. <laughs> it works, Right. And what's what's really interesting there is if you think about it, HR, their job is to find and retain talent, right? Yeah. Which, again, things are changing so fast. How do you do that yeah. if you're not constantly laying people off and bringing new people in? Yeah. Because the average amount of money that companies spend on training is $1,000 per year per employee. Yep. That's it. And, and you're not going to get people into the next generation of, of uh, what automation and what technology is going to enable. And there's lots of jobs there. There are many, many jobs for people, but they're coming really fast. There's a great uh, plot on Amazon where they show, here's all of our top jobs we're hiring. And then they show backwards in time how many people they had in those jobs over the past 10 years. And almost all their top jobs didn't exist four years ago. And now that's who they're hiring everyone for. And mm-hmm. that's the really the big change, right? So the, uh, you have HR bringing them in. Then you have middle managers that are basically trying to optimize the use of those people, right? Yeah. So they're making sure everyone kind of gets on the right project so that everyone's got a full-time job and everyone's trying to get full work. You know what the average productivity for that is?
0: What is the average productivity, Steve? Three
1: out of Every eight hours is productive, according to <laughs> University of Ohio, right? Well, within a day, right? Within a day. That's eight, crazy. Three out of every eight hours, 37%. But wow. you know how much overhead you pay for security and HR and all those managers? You pay 1.7 to 2.7 times the salary of the person. That, that doesn't add up. up.
0: It doesn't make It sense. doesn't. Yeah.
1: And so you can literally pay a freelancer two to three times the rate. Wow. And they'll actually... And you'll come out ahead. So nice. it's really interesting. And if you think about it, I, so I, I actually met one of the top freelancers at, at Top Coder. and I said, "Hey, I know I know freelancers. They work. They they study a lot more about what's coming out. They study the new technologies." I was curious how much of your time do you spend kind of keeping up with things, and you know, not working, but just keeping up with sixty percent of the time, mm. six zero. And I was like, well, there's the disconnect right there. People that are passionate about it, and I'm like, well, how do you make any money? He goes, oh, no, I make six times the average salary of Greece where I work. (laughs) That's not the issue with his. And if you think about it, but think about the model, right? Yeah. In people's jobs, they're really only productive three out of every eight hours because the rest is staff and bureaucracy, Mm -hmm. right? It's all the things it's not. Well, if you're a freelancer, you're doing that passion stuff that you love to do. You're not you're not uh held back by all this other stuff. Mm. And so what do you do with that extra 60% of your time? You go learn and you're upskilling. And I think that's the real secret to this, is there's really a cost model here that's good for business and good for people. Um, because you can actually thread that together. There's a survey out by Edelman and uh, Intelligence that uh, I think Upwork sponsored a couple of years ago. And they found that within a year, most freelancers were making more money than they were before. And mm. when asked how much more money would it take you to come back and work for a company, over half said, there is no amount of money that I will take to come back and work for a company. Like- <laughs> That's happening. Like, I think people have they've gotten fed up with the Office Space movie and with the Dilbert cartoons because, like, there's a reason those are funny because people can resonate with I'm just a cog in somebody else's wheel versus I'm doing my passion. NASA has some of the most passionate and intelligent people, right, that love space, and I can tell you we in working with the government a lot of them don't feel like they are f- hitting that passion right they feel like they're just a cog in a wheel sometimes not always but when even nasa has that problem it's a structural issue hmm. right and so what we want to do is we want to figure out how do we take if, if you've ever worked with somebody who's passionate about it you don't count hours right because you know they're going to do what it's what They're going to do amazing stuff to get that done. And, and if they're all in, that's not even part of the equation, right? And and that's what the passion economy is starting to do is it's, it's giving people access to those people to be on your team. Mm. And for the individual, it gives you the chance to do the stuff you enjoy and not be burdened by the stuff you don't like. Uh, you had John, uh, Paul Estes on a few, a uh, couple of months oh, you, ago. Right? I love Paul. he's awesome. Uh, and it blew me away that when he actually told his team at Microsoft, "Hey, start using freelancers. Right, mm-hmm. use these to do your work." That one of the guys that he had been about to fire because his performance was so poor doing video training videos, that that guy became his star performer because he stopped having to do the stuff he hated. And he was able to form a freelance team that could do those parts that he wasn't passionate about, but somebody else was. And suddenly he not only was operating with his passion, he was mobilizing other people's passion and he, he was actually more productive than anybody else. So there's some secret sauce here that is worth tapping into. And we're in the middle of a slow, long transition with big sprints and avalanches along the way. And I think this COVID thing has has really created that, right? Because we're suddenly seeing what people can do remotely. We're, we're enabling oh, that. George. That's just <laughs> going to right? Well, and all these layoffs that are going on, er, you know, most people, like over half, have one foot in the gig economy already. They're right. already doing a little Uber
0: driving here, a little this there. And you so, know, what often surprises me—I don't think people realize how big the gig economy is. Often, when the, people just think of the gig economy, they just, they just think, "Oh, it's just Uber, things like that." But people are really making a sustainable living. And I think what's so surprising—what people don't realize—is that the gig economy is growing during, yeah. Yeah. through this, through this um, economic um, downturn. So there's no there's no stop there, and people don't often realize that. They think it's very—they think of the gig economy from a very niche and narrow perspective. Yeah. And and it used to be, right? It is, but it is growing naturally.
1: Like it is expanding, not because people like you and me are talking it up. It's expanding all by itself. People are like, Hey, do I want to go into an office or do I want to do what I I'm most passionate about? And they're opting for that. There are something like over 700 crowd-based platforms out there. And I, I mean, you can get all kinds of work at every level, which is really exciting um, what what I'm trying to do uh with OpenAssembly and others is trying to push to where some of these platforms mm-hmm. really do this more responsibly, right? So that they, for instance, build in lifelong learning. So in, instead of just being an Uber driver, and that's all you are ever gonna be if you're if you just keep doing that job, uh, do things like Paro.io, right? Michael Burdick, mm-hmm. where he's basically he has an accounting freelance firm where every time he uses the machine learning to match somebody to a task, he matches them just at the edge of their capability and mm-hmm. then provides them some support so that they're going to do that task and they're going to succeed because he makes sure that he has the right resources. But by the time they're done, they're smarter. They're actually mm-hmm. they're upskilled. What if we did Uber like that, where you took a, you you took somebody somewhere, but by the, the time you took did three of those, you learned somebody's logistics skills. Uh, system, and then you're actually delivering something, and then you're working your way up, and you're you're actually orchestrating other things. We need systems that actually transition people into this new set of jobs that are coming out. Mm-hmm. Every time we automate something, and we are automating stuff at a frightening rate, um, but every time we do that, we create jobs, but those jobs are are usually even higher reach, right? So we've no. got to figure out how can we bring everybody? There's such um, opportunity here. Uh, I've, I've been talking a lot with SamaSource lately. I don't know if you have SamaSource uh, or are familiar with that crowd. Familiar
0: with them. huh? I am familiar with them.
1: Yeah. Layla Jaffe, uh, rest her soul. She yeah. did amazing work pulling up there. And Wendy Gonzalez is doing a great job as CEO there. But they, they reached into the poorest of poor ghettos around the world and pulled people out and said, Hey, we're going to teach you how to do data labeling and how to do a machine learning prep at a way that's going to pull you out of poverty and have a huge impact. And at the same time is providing large companies exactly the service they need to get into this new machine learning, Mm -hmm. that kind of thinking of giving people opportunity, but not just, you know, Data labeling. If you look at what they're doing, they're upskilling people as well, and their people—they have a pipeline of people that just work their way through and come out the other side. Uh, Tom O'Malley's doing the same thing in in sales at Current, where you know he's out there recruiting people in sales. They come onto the platform; it's gamified, and within a real short amount of time, they're upskilled in their sales capability until they're expert salesmen. That's mm kind of thing that I think is really important because the The gate work
0: that we're seeing. Yeah.
1: The work, learn, the lifelong learning, because, you know, if there are so many people out there that either can't afford the time or the money of the education systems that we have out there, but more and more, the resources are online. They just need a structure that kind of gives them the right coaching and the right pieces that that will become more natural. And We're starting to see some elements that thread that together in some pretty amazing
0: ways. So I'm really excited about all of that. No, Steve I can feel your excitement and I think our even our community can feel feel it man and, and I think what 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 I want to show love to our amazing community because I actually have a, a really powerful question for you that I think I would love to get your thoughts on that we have to ask you before you you know you, you cap things off with us you know first of all Megan I think she was asking and internalizing some of the things that you were saying she was like who is doing that upskilling who's responsible responsible is it the, is it supposed to be the employer uh, or our government what are your thoughts on that Steve? a really great question um
1: here's the thing i think as these platforms kind of start to play out and as this becomes more and more competitive what we want to make sure is that that you have portability between the platforms that you don't get locked in one of the problems with our current system is once you get a company they provide your benefits they provide your steady paycheck and you're chained to them you don't have the freedom an agency to kind of move and leave. And so one of the things that we're talking a lot about with a group of these platforms is let's make sure no matter what, we're not trying to lock users in. And at the same time, that competitiveness for workers and good workers means that they're going to be really on the hook, not from a mandate standpoint, but from a competitive standpoint. Right, mm-hmm. because who are you going to go and w- work for? Somebody who just capitalizes on what you know today, or is going to help you live into your tomorrow and find your passions for tomorrow. So there's there's a little bit built into the market that says these platforms have to start offering a more and more competitive way in upskilling, and that's honestly that's what Michael Burdick was doing at Paraguay. He's trying to get the best crowd and keep them right, because that's uh, a lot of these platforms. Uh, initially were set up where people could find a job with somebody and then they would immediately go off platform for any future work. Well, that's, that's not a sustainable model. It doesn't protect the worker from, you know, fraud. There's lots of things. So these platforms have to provide the value add and part of that's going to be upskilling. Part of that's going to be low friction, finding that global uh, marketplace that that's going to be so important. Uh, and, and I think um, you're seeing that in the more successful platforms it's happening. I would say we probably should steer clear of trying to legislate this stuff because that's actually how we got into the predicament. Right now, mm-hmm. we try to protect workers by saying every company provide benefits and provide all this. Now that turns out to be the big enemy of freelancers because – they, they don't have that same capability. So if we had just made it, everyone pays for their own stuff, it probably actually would have been better because we could have more fluidly gone to freelance and immediately start to make money because we weren't kind of shackled to this benefits idea. It, hmm. it is what it is now. There's got to be a transition. It's going to be a little bit painful. Um, but there are ways, and I think um, what I look here is the opportunity hmm. is, has been leveled anyone can get on they just we just need to be telling people we need to be telling people that need this hey this exists here's how to get on here's how to use that and that's i'm hoping we can get into more and more education institutes and more places to to really let people at all strata understand what's going on here because there's huge opportunities
0: yeah man the community loves you steve Megan said, Steve must come back. <laughs> Thanks, Megan. I love it. I love it. Steve is definitely going to come back. I mean, you can just feel the passion in Steve's tone and voice. Mrs. Jimenez also said, Steve is a gem. So she's <laughs> loving it. And she also made a comment where she shared, office politics gets in the way of creators and innovation. It slows things down and it's time consuming. If we equate time with money companies should realize it's costly to continue to operate that way. Steve is like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could like
1: go on and on about that topic yeah, right now for see, a long time.
0: And Steve, you know, I think this is this is one of the questions really that I have in mind for you because I, I you share so many powerful thoughts and perspectives on where you see the, the our lifelong learning model going, how we can integrate it, as well as just this radicalization of cross-sourced work. And I want to ask you, what does the new safety net look like, Steve? Yeah. Because I think we're we're still feeling figuring that out in the US. Yeah. I think a lot of other countries have figured it out to a degree. Um, and, you know, the, the, it, it's something to a degree it has to do with us having a sustainable healthcare infrastructure, which we don't necessarily have in the US it, for some yeah, reason. Yeah.
1: I, well, and it's, it's interesting. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not a political thing for me. It's a yeah. competitive thing, right? If you look at the freelance workforce, which is, is, before COVID was slated to be larger than the traditional workforce by 2027. I think mm. most people think it's probably closer to 2024, 2025. If that happens, guess who's the least competitive workforce in the world, in the freelance world? Mm. The U S right. Cause we have the highest standard of living or one of the highest. And yet we have have to pay for all those benefits if we go freelance. And so mm suddenly in a new world when half of your workforce is less competitive globally than the rest because of this issue, that becomes a different kind of world, right? And so I think it's um, one of the things that freelancing does is it, it it's a recognition that this is a global economy and your customers are global, your comp- competition is global, and your opportunities to, to, to actually partner and do things are, are global. So, I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people. And that's why we're getting a lot of this kind of nationalistic pushback around the world. And I get it. It's fear. Uh, Transitions are hard. Fear is real. Um, But I will tell you, I started all of this from a position of fear. Um, I saw what automation was coming uh, in, in the change, the rate of change automation has been coming forever. Mm. It just hasn't been coming this fast. And that's really the difference in all of this is the speed, the velocity uh, and really the acceleration that we're seeing um, it is unlike anything we've ever, ever been through. And so we can think we've been there, but we haven't. And the potential is that that's going to create a job suck, uh, you know, a dissolving of a lot of people's livelihood. And when I started looking at the passion economy and looking at global, uh, freelancing, that's when I I realized, Oh, this is the secret. This, Mm -hmm. this is what gives everyone the opportunity to start actually plugging into the global economy and to keep up. And it has to come with lifelong learning. It has to come with the ability to kind of move where the need takes you rather than being controlled. Um, and I think that starts to show a much more promising future as long as we can make the pivot. Like it's a race condition. And if, if we lose jobs faster than we actually adapt to this new kind of way to work um, it's going to be a lot of social unrest. And I I think it's, it's, it's not a binary, right? I think it's already a lot of the unrest you're seeing right now is because Jobs aren't quite all there. Well, in fact, after COVID, a serious job uh, shortage, right? Mm. So, How do we move to this lifelong learning? How do we move to where people can actually be ready for all these new jobs that are coming online? Um, And finding ways that they can start small and work their way up in ways that that are real. So the safety net, it's interesting you say that. one of the thoughts I've had, and this is just Steve Rader thought. So do take this very much farther. But if if the if you start using platforms to actually get people work and match them up, mm-hmm. then one of the ways that if government wanted to stimulate is that they could start basically posting jobs mm-hmm. in, in, in almost like a jobs program, right? Where they could get things done for the government using a set of freelance platforms to employ People And, and you know, the, if you've ever read Layla Javi's book, uh, Give Work, she makes a very powerful case that in any society, the best thing you can do is give somebody a job, give somebody something to do, um, because they want to do. They want to matter. They want to accomplish things. They want to, you know, provide for themselves. And I think what I really see is there's this huge opportunity to start engaging people who never had a chance like Mm -hmm. people who have um are on the spectrum and who would never pass a job interview but have amazing math skills right or people exactly non-traditional people people who who maybe have no arms or legs but are Mm -hmm. super smart well they have the tools they just don't fit in an office well and managers get nervous about how they like all of the ada stuff starts to get interesting but then you if you look at innovation, and which is the other passion I have, and where diversity takes on a whole new meaning when you talk about innovation, because everybody's unique perspective adds to that um, ability to come up with innovative solutions. And when you start talking about including more minorities and more people from different backgrounds and more women and more, you know, suddenly innovation just starts taking off. Uh, you multiply that with lifelong learning that might expose people to different disciplines, so you get people to be more and more multidiscipline as opposed to really narrow. And now you've got a formula where the, the the places that embrace this kind of thing and start understanding where innovation plays a role, those economies are going to ignite in ways that that we've never even seen. Like we think technology is exploding now, and things are are going uh, gangbusters in that way. But when we actually can harness the diversity to actually make a difference, that's that's when things are going to get interesting. And I'm and really just uh, I have a positive outlook. So I've gone from very negative on the robot. <laughs> to, uh, I have hope.
0: I <laughs> know. We love your optimism, man. We can feel it. So shout out to Megan, who's saying safety net equals socialized healthcare and education, plus adapt- adaptability, plus connected economy, as you said. So she's filling your thoughts not only posting, but using social media to find with AI and ML neurodiversity, able diversity, Huge fans, huge advocate of that here. Thank you so much, Megan, for sharing that. Yeah. And Mrs. Jimenez is saying people want to serve a purpose, so she's filling you on the fact that the biggest thing you can ever do for someone is giving them a job. Steve, man, it's it's really been inspiring having you on the show because you have opened my eyes. <laughs> and you are, and you know I, we've learned so much from you. And I, I think you know, thank you for all of your work that you continue to do because you know, often you read a lot about, you know, the future of work, you read a lot about what's happening. And people often talk about it from a very pessimistic, very, very narrow-minded and negative view. But I think one of the things I really love about your view and a lot of the work that you're doing as an advocate, as a leader, is that you're really painting a broad and very optimistic picture, which is often... and, and, And I think, you know, people see the possibilities, but sometimes people... You know, we need people like Steve Rader who are who are evangelizing this. So, you know, thank you so much because I I, because I feel as if I read too many articles where it's like, okay, robots are going to take our jobs. Everyone run for the hills and stay home. And that's (laughs) not the future that we're building. You know, no, no, it's I I
1: get really excited about. About where we can get to, I get nervous that we're not going to like it's not going to be there. I will say this. Here's just one more food for thought right on jobs.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, in our current model of a 40 hour work week, do you know how you can double the jobs in the U S in one day, how go to a 20 hour work week. Wow. Right. That? But people don't think that way. Right. Because they're like, Oh, but you couldn't do this. You couldn't, this. no, we have established what we think a, a wage wages and how all that works. What you find, if you look in the freelance world, is people are already working few hours for more money mm-hmm. and they're they're able to adapt. So if automation eventually does take more and more of the tasks, the, the more natural way to deal with that is actually through the freelance world because wages can ad- adjust faster. The timeframes can adjust faster. And so all of this can adapt. In the corporate world, people can't even dream. They can't even imagine of that kind of shift it just, it makes their mind explode. But in the freelance world, it's already happening. People mm. are already getting paid more for certain jobs. They work fewer hours. It's a really interesting uh, market shift that's going on. But uh, I think it, if you look at kind of where automation's going, we ought to be thinking about, hey, what happens when all of the jobs go away? I know it's years and years away, but that trend and path, uh, makes sense over here uh, in the gig economy. doesn't make sense in the traditional.
0: Yeah, yeah. Steve, man, the people are feeling you, man. 20 hours, end of story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, man. Steve, man, it's been a blast having you on the show. We definitely have to have you on in a future episode, man. What do you think, Oh, absolutely! I, are you kidding?
1: It's an honor. You're you're the you're the real evangelist, man. I, 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 I'm tickled to be on with you.
0: So I appreciate it, Tim. Oh, thank you, brother. I am honored, man. Steve, it's been a pleasure, man. Talk to you soon, brother. <laughs> okay. Oh man, wasn't he awesome? Please make sure you go check out Steve and his amazing work. I've actually shared multiple links to his profile in the comments. Steve is an awesome, awesome, awesome leader, as well as business mind and and futurist on this future that we're building. Next up, because I do have a follow-up guest. Man, this guy that I'm about to talk to, he's fantastic. But I want you to stick around to learn who he is. You probably have read one of his books before. And if you haven't, you're probably going to after this episode. So we're going to cap this broadcast and then we're going to create a new broadcast with the phenomenal Shane Snow. Check him out. We're going to be going live with him in just a few minutes, so stay tuned, stay buckled to your seats, and make sure that you share this episode with your network, because we just talked with the phenomenal Steve Raider. And if you haven't, if you have not signed up for early access for guideapp.co, sign up for early access today, we are gradually rolling out our beta, and our customers are incredibly happy and excited about what we're building and the movement that we're leading in today's generation and world. With that said, stay tuned to the edge of your seat. I have my next guest coming up, Mr. Shane Snow, the maestro, the leader, the the thought evangelist himself. He's going to be on the show. Talk to you soon.